I hope this week when you're going through challenging things, that line, I will be content in every circumstance. Jaira, you are enough. If I have you, I already have everything that I need. Paul says I had to learn that though. I didn't naturally have that understanding. I wasn't naturally content in every circumstance. But God says I want to show you that you could be. Because if you have me, you have all that you need. And that doesn't mean that every circumstance is easy. Sometimes people have that misconception that you should have this idea or this attitude or this perspective that you should, this is small. These things aren't necessarily small. In an eternal sense, they are, but as you face them, they're hard. They're challenging. They're difficult. So it's a matter of focus. It's a matter of perspective. What will my perspective be in what I'm going through? What will my perspective be as I'm facing these things and I'm confronting these things that come along in life? It's not that am I not going to be affected by them. You are being affected by them. But am I going to have the perspective that because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He's leading me. He's guiding me. He's with me. I don't have to fear. I can have a sense of contentment and purpose even in the face of these things. That's the, that's the real question. Let's have a word of prayer here this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to gather and to spend time together even singing songs, lifting up our voices together to you, even praying and talking to you collectively here this morning as we have our heads bowed together. Pray that we would have a common purpose and a common cause, a common mission, that we would be striving together for the furtherance of the gospel, that we would be ministering to one another in love, that we would be building up and edifying the body, not through our own strength, but by letting you work in and through us, as knowing that as you shine your light in us, that we'll be beneficial to others that you've put in our lives, that we'll have the opportunity, not through our strength, not through our even zeal for you, but just by allowing you in our zeal for wanting to have a relationship with you and let you work in our lives. But as we're enjoying you, that we're going to see you transform us into the kind of people that you want us to be and that that can have a bright effect on those around us. Pray that we would just even celebrate that you're not asking us to make ourselves into something different. You're asking us to desire to be made different and to let you working and through us to make us and transform us into something different. Thank you that when it comes to all of the things that we need, you are the one who ultimately maintains the responsibility for bringing about those changes. And your and our part in it is, do we, will we make a decision to allow you to do that? Will we have that be our desire? Will we get out of the way? Thank you for keeping it that simple so we don't start to think that the Christian life is something that is lived through our strength, it's lived through our dedication even to something, but that it's lived through a choice to enjoy you and to walk with you and to keep our eyes focused on you and to keep our gaze fixed on the heavenly eternal realm. 
Pray that you just remind us of all these things and even encourage us as we're here this morning. Convict us of the things that we need convicting, convicting about so we could get our priorities straight. We could be reminded that we're not putting you first. We're not, you aren't presently all that we need, but help, help to change our thinking so that you could be because we know that you want to be. Pray for all those that are struggling with various medical problems and of various kinds, even just thinking of Dave Samuelson as he's still in a coma. Pray that you just undertake for his physicians and his family and his doctors and for him, that you'd give him encouragement and comfort as he's facing this hard trial. Pray that you'd undertake so that it could be used for your honor and glory, but that you'd comfort his heart, you'd encourage him as as he even is in a coma now, that we know that you're capable of even working through that and getting through in a place where you're able to strengthen him and uphold him uh, as he's facing this battle with this, uh, these injuries that he suffered. Just pray for, again, him and his family and everyone else who's going through hard things too. We know that there's many on our prayer list. Pray that we would be even thoughtful and interested in lifting them up in prayer because we know collectively that prayers are something that have an effect on even outcomes that you say that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now that avails much in our own lives as it keeps the focus on you, but it, it availeth much in the sense that you factor our prayers in even to your dealings with mankind. Pray that we would just recognize the value of that and the importance of that and even ben, be men and women on our knees, so to speak. Be men and women who have hearts that want to be prayer prayer warriors wanting to talk to you and talk and pray our way through the day, just continually be checking in with you as we go about our lives. Thank you for your truth. Pray that you give me wisdom as I speak this morning. Pray that what is said would be accurate and clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the screen here this morning's sermon title is Stand Firm, and hold tightly. Two different exhortations that are being made, but frankly, there are two things that are being prayed for that we're going to see later here today. But stand firm and hold tightly. And as we observed last Sunday, obtaining, we were looking at our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 is the whole passage, but we looked at verses 13 and 14 last Sunday, and one of the words that we came to was we saw that God's purpose in even making a, a decision or determination to save every person who would put their faith in the future in Jesus Christ. In the past, we observed that God made a decision, a determination, an election. He chose to save everyone who in the future would receive respond to the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, but he didn't do it for no reason. He did that through sanctification by the Spirit. We talked about how the Spirit of God is even involved in convict, convincing men or convicting men of sin and how God is drawing men to himself and there's a divine initiative in that process as God is making salvation possible. He's willing. He, he has a determination that he wants men to be saved, not some men. We looked at lots of passages that it was God's will that all men would be saved and that he's drawing all men to the lifted up nature of Jesus Christ as Christ is elevated even in a very physical sense elevated on a tree for all to see and and 
in a sense of drawing men to that gospel message by making Jesus bigger and lifting him up. And even that being our mission to magnify or make Jesus Christ bigger so that people, all people, have an opportunity then to respond to the truth of God's word. And so God is initiating the plan of salvation. We talked about finding a balance between God's sovereignty and man's choice, man's free will or man's responsibility. And and seeing that man, though, the second part of our verse was that man had the responsibility or their part in it was belief in the truth. God makes his truth available to us. He draws men to the truth. He illuminates the truth like a beacon. He wants us to be drawing people to God's truth. But then man has to make a decision. Man has to respond to that truth. God isn't saving people against his will, just like he, against their will, just like he's not causing people to be damned against their will either. A man who is going to spend eternity apart from Jesus Christ cannot blame God for doing that. A, a man who is spending eternity in the lake of fire apart from God is ultimately has himself to blame. He's not going to be able to get to, you wouldn't even have a need for a great right throne judgment if God had already predetermined this outcome. You, couldn't, you wouldn't be held accountable at all in that sense because you'd just stand there and you'd say, God, the only reason I'm going to hell is because you didn't choose me. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. And the truth is that it's, it's taught more and more often, and I hate to even get into it, but it's a perversion of the gospel. The gospel is that the gospel has been made available. The good news has been presented to all men everywhere with God's desire being that all of them would be saved if they would choose to put their faith in Jesus Christ. God's not the one to blame if you find yourself spending eternity apart from him. You're the one who's to blame. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, not because he couldn't be saved, but because he won't put his trust in Jesus Christ. He who believes is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Your condemnation is a direct result of your rejection of Jesus Christ and nothing else. God did not force an outcome of rejection on you. You choose that for yourself, just like he's not forcing his life on you either. He came to offer life through the person and work of his son. The question is, will you believe that or not? Will you accept that or not? It's offered as a gift. It couldn't be offered freely as a gift if it had already been determined in eternity past in some kind of a cosmic lottery. That is not what this verse was about. It was about God's having elected or determined or chose to save everyone in the future who would put their trust in Jesus Christ with an emphasis on the collective body of people who are now viewed through their identification and their position in Christ. The moment that you get saved, you're put into the, something under the headship of Jesus Christ called the body of Christ. You're now identified positionally with Christ. You're now in Christ. He chose you in Christ. He chose to put anyone who would be saved, who would put their trust in Jesus Christ, to put them positionally in the standing of Jesus Christ. So they're standing in his shoes, so to, so to speak. They're part of this collective now body of all these believers under the headship of Jesus Christ that are now saved and God wanted every man everywhere to become a part of that but some will not as we observed in John chapter 5 Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and saying you will not do this it's not that you could not you thought you think that you're finding righteousness through keeping the law and the traditions of men that was their perspective he's saying to them you think that you have life 
Because you're trying to keep all of these rules and regulations, all these things that you, you think could give you life. But he says those scriptures that you're so focused on keeping the rules, you missed the whole point. The point of the scripture was to show man what? That he's hopeless and helpless and hellbound apart from God intervening on his behalf and making a way for him to be rescued apart from himself, apart from works. The whole message is you couldn't do this without me. When you operate independent from me, you're lost. But you can be found, you can be rescued by learning to get yourself out of that equation and put all of your eggs in the basket of trusting me to do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's what grace is, unmerited favor. God giving us what we don't deserve because he is motivated by a love for us. Not, not, not motivated by some kind of an arbitrary random selection in eternity past where some some got, it, some got in on it and some didn't through nothing to do with themselves, all to do with God's just whimsical choices. That's not the message of the Bible. And so as you're thinking about God and his love and his desire that people would get in on this, again, the emphasis is always on God initiates and offers. He holds this out. He's offering. It's, it's like a lifeguard who took the initiative to swim out to a drowning swimmer. And he's holding out a life, a rescue buoy. And he's saying, grab a hold of this, friend. I don't want to see you perish. I don't want to see you drown. There's a way of rescue and it's right here. Just grab onto this. Grab a hold of this. And God is the one who initiated that rescue in that sense. So there's God, God has a very significant part in it. But he doesn't force you to grab a hold of that way of rescue. You have to make a decision for yourself. And so as we move through our passage here, there was a purpose in God having elected to save every individual who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, but collectively to save the entire group of people who are, who are in Christ as a result of putting their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. As Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You notice he didn't say no one comes to the Father except for having been previously selected or elected in time past. And you have no choice but to respond to that. But no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he says, you need to believe in me. Will you believe in me? 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 Will you trust in me? Hundreds of times you can find that in the New Testament. Believe, 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 trust, 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 faith, 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 faith. You see, the emphasis is on always your response to the life-saving remedy that God has offered to you. But he says, I did this for a purpose. I, I, I determined to save every individual who would put their faith in Jesus Christ for a reason, and he says what that reason was. He said, to which meaning to this salvation that was just mentioned in verse 13, to which he called you by our gospel, meaning that people actually have to present the gospel, but by the gospel, the good news, for what? For what purpose? For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about what that was talking about in terms of acquiring, that word obtaining requiring, uh, referring to the permanent acquisition of something or gaining something in a secure and permanent manner. And so we talked about positionally that's true. And when we talked about the glory of Christ, we talked about this quality of emitting 
or reflecting beautiful and bright light, that Jesus has that quality and we positionally get saved into that. We become a part of that. We become identified with this quality of emitting a bright and beautiful light. Our own bright and beautiful light? No, His bright and beautiful light, we're saved for into that, for that purpose of obtaining that. Now, we talked about how that has positional ramifications, meaning that it now is our identity that God, when He sees us, He doesn't see us in a sin anymore. He sees us in the, the light, the glory of Jesus Christ, which we get in on. We're glorified in Him, and He's glorified in us now as we are united in Christ. We're put positionally into Christ. And what a wonderful thing that would be. And we talked about how the believer, through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, has acquired now things permanently, positionally, that he never had before. And we, and we spoke about that completed reality as it related to the glory of Christ. This rich inheritance that was settled as a result of us responding in faith to the presentation of the gospel message through the teaching in this instance of the Apostle Paul and his associates to this particular group of people who had in the past responded to that message and now became a part of this body of Christ. So if your rich inheritance was settled, then the question is, always will you appropriate the riches that you have and will you live in light of that position that you have? So you have this now exalted position of having obtained or acquired permanently the glory of Christ, this radiating the light, the beauty and the light and the brightness of Jesus Christ. And that's true positionally, but then we talked about Paul's not just talking about the fact that positionally you're now identified with the glory of Christ. He's talking about the idea that you were saved for, that per, for, for a purpose that you would be a reflection of that in time right now too. That your life would be lived in a way that would be a reflection of the light of Jesus Christ. That you would have this quality of emitting this beautiful and this bright light, not because you're producing that light, but because you're reflecting Christ's light in your life. That that was an underlying purpose behind you even being saved to begin with. You weren't saved for nothing. I know some people who come out of more of a works-driven religious background their, their Christian background is more that they have been exposed to this idea that you need to really do your best and you need to really work hard to make yourself acceptable to God. That person is doing those works in, in an effort to make God somehow accept them into heaven or accept them into his family. And then when you tell them you can't ever work your way into God's family, God offers us access to himself through the person and work of his son as a free gift. You can't work for it. It's a free gift. It's apart from works. The Bible says now to him who does not work, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And so you think about Ephesians even 2, 8, 9 that we'll look at a little bit later that says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. Not by works of righteousness, Titus, in the book of Titus, it says, not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy he saved us. It's faith alone in Christ's gracious provision through his love gift of his son that allows us access to the Father apart from works. And then so many of you who have heard only good people go to heaven. Heaven is for good people and hell is for bad people. You say, 
if, if heaven is for everybody who would put their trust and accept as a gift what God offered through the sacrifice of his son as his son became sin for us, paid the debt of our sin, and he said, it is finished, and the father raised him from the dead as evidence that that sacrifice was acceptable to him as a propitiation or a satisfying payment for all men's sin for all time. And if that's what settled the issue of sin and and man's debt that he owed to, owed to God as a result of his sin, if that's what settled it, then where's the place for working? Uh, you're saying that anyone can go to heaven apart from works? That doesn't, I thought heaven was a reward for good people and that hell is the just payment for those that don't try very hard. So many of you are confused then because you hear that and you say, that doesn't make sense. Everything in my life has been, I work really hard and I get some kind of reward for it. If I work the hardest, I get a promotion. Now, that's not always true, is it? I work really hard and I get more playing time on the basketball team. That's not always true, is it? But you have this perception that everything in life has to be earned, even though the truth is most of the best things in your life you never earned at all. What are some of the best things in your life, just curiously? Some, some of the best things that you have in your life start with your relationship with God. That wasn't earned. Some of the rest of it is the best things that you'd have in your life or the people in your life. You didn't earn that either. You didn't do anything to deserve to have good parents if you had them. On the flip side of that, you didn't do anything to deserve bad parents if you have them too. If you have a good marriage, did you do anything to deserve it to turn out that way? How many of the people in your life that are much nicer people than you didn't have it turn out that way? It had nothing to do with merit. You think about some of the other blessings that you have in your life and how you did absolutely nothing to get them. Oftentimes, even the wealth that we have isn't even the result of hard work. Sometimes it is. But very often, wealth is generational. It's passed on from one generation to the next. Nothing to do with merit. So why do you have this idea or why do we promote this idea that somehow heaven would be a merit-based system? The Bible doesn't promote that message. The Bible promotes a totally different message that says every man is guilty of God's judgment. Every man is a sinner and there's nothing that you could do to fix that problem because all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The wages of that sin is death. You deserve to be eternally separated from God. And everyone had the same debt that they owed and they all deserve the same thing. And so if even our works of righteousness are filthy rags as far as God sees it, the prophet Isaiah says that all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags. They're offensive to God because they're sourced in a human effort. They're sourced in a human power source. God is never pleased by that because he says, you can do, without me you can do nothing is what Jesus said. Apart from me undertaking to provide for you, you can't fix this problem that you have. You need me to fix this problem for you. So every effort to fix that problem on your own, even though in a sense it would represent human good, it's still offensive and smelly to God because it excludes him. It leaves him out. It's done and it's, it's orchestrated or it finds its source in hu human effort apart from him. And so in a sense as you think about the glory of God or having any kind of access to God, the question again comes back to then what is to, what is to motivate people to do the right things? 
What about all these good things that I heard about? It's important that we do these things. If they can't earn you a spot in heaven, then what are they, what is it all about? What is it good for? Well, and that's where we get to this idea that as somebody goes from dead to alive, lost to found by putting their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, they're now adopted into God's family. God says, I created you, I designed you for a purpose. I designed you for a purpose so that you could live life in a way that would lift me up, that would make me bigger, that would point people to me. So the point of good works isn't to earn God's favor you never could. You have to receive it as a gift. Paul says it's either 100% grace or it's 100% works. It's not grace plus a little bit of works. It's not, I get to go to heaven because God loved me and he graciously provided a way for me and I went through this religious ritual and I did my best and I joined a church and I gave money to this, that, or the other thing and I'm a pretty good guy. No, you're not. You think you are, but it's only relative to someone else. And it's only not taking into account all of the deepest, darkest parts of you. So the truth of it is then, what is the reason, what is the purpose of good works? It's not to elevate yourself. That's where it's completely flawed. The mindset of the religious man is I do the good works to make myself bigger so that God will notice me and accept me. And the Bible says the purpose of good works is to make him bigger. It's to show that as, as his child and as I respond to what he's done for me, as I respond in love to his love for me, I'm not doing good works in order to earn his favor. I already have his favor. I'm not doing good works in order to make him love me. He already loves me. I'm doing good works. I'm, I'm compelled to live a life that would bring him honor and glory. I'm motivated by his love to then live in a way that would be honorable to him because I'm responding to his love, not guilt, shame, and obligation. I'm, I'm responding to this desire to make him bigger. Now, even those good works in my life, though, I'm realizing that apart from Him working in and through me, apart from His Spirit empowering me, apart from staying connected to Him, I would never be able to produce any kind of work or effort in my life that would bring Him honor and glory. But I think too often we sometimes forget that we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all true, as a result of him loving us so much, having nothing to do with merit on our part, all true, but we weren't saved for no reason. We were saved to enjoy fellowship with him, and as we enjoyed fellowship with him, we were also saved to be a reflection of him so that other people could see him in us. That when they looked at us, they wouldn't see Gus Lehman anymore. They wouldn't say, fill in your name anymore. They would see Jesus Christ. Not because we're so wonderful, not because we had done anything great, but because we were trusting Him to work in our lives to make Himself bigger through our lives. That's the point. That God would be able to make Himself bigger through our lives and our desire wouldn't be to make ourselves better known or have a good reputation, but we would want to be lifting up His reputation. Wanting to be lifting up Him and saying, here's the one you should be focused on because here's the one who can give life. Life in time. Life that has meaning in time. Life that has purpose in time. Life that is cont has contentment and joy and peace in time. But life that will be eternal Life that will go on forever 
and it's only found in Jesus Christ. So my life is intended to lift him up and make him bigger. And one of the ways God does that is by working through us. But I'm not working to earn his favor. I already have his love. He saw me when I was dead in trespasses and sins. And he still wanted to make me alive anyway. He still loved me anyway. He saw me for the wretch that I was. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He saw me in my time of need and he loved me anyway. And so he sent his son to pay my pardon, to pay my debt, to satisfy to satisfy what I could never pay through his death in my place. He became my substitute. He, somebody had to die because the debt that was owed for sin was death. So I either had to die or an innocent needed to die, needed to die in my place. And that was Jesus Christ. So he died in my place and he said, now I've come that you might have life and that you would have it abundantly. He's not just talking about eternal life here. He's talking about a quality of life or a type of life, a way of living in time too. And he says, I'm going to give you a comforter. I'm going to give you a helper. I'm going to give you my spirit to live inside of you so that that power source can work in and through you as you stay connected to me, as you're mentally fixed on me, as you're looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. As you're doing that, I'm going to have my spirit work in and through you to produce a way of living a way of life that would be characterized by good works, by righteousness. Because the Spirit of God is not wanting to produce unrighteousness in your life. The Spirit of God wants to use you as a living, breathing, walking testimony of Jesus Christ. And the result of that is that if God's testifying through you, He's not testifying about sin. He's not promoting sin in your life. He's promoting righteousness in your life. But he's the one who's doing that when you're a yielded vessel in his hand, when you're willing to let him produce that way of life in you. And so do good works have their place? Yes. But do they save you? Are you working your way to be saved? No. God wants to use your life in a way where good works would what? Testify of him to the people that he directs you to in the places and spaces that he directs you to so that you could be an effective ambassador for Jesus Christ. Not so that you could make him somehow love you. He already did. In any event, as we get into this practical side of things here this morning, the point is that you were saved as a result of all of God's, God's gracious disposition towards you, his love for you, his provision of his son, and then your part, your response to the truth. It was for a purpose that you would live in light of this position that you have. You would appropriate this position that you have, that you have obtained the glory of Jesus Christ, that that would be for a purpose. Now, as we move on, let's take a closer look at the rest of the practical side of this obtaining even the glory of Jesus Christ, what that would even involve as we move on with our passage. So we have verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. Beloved by the Lord, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 right now. Beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, we've covered that at length, through what? Sanctification by the Spirit and your part, belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now therefore... 
That's just a wonderful word there. Therefore, in light of the salvation that you have as a byproduct of your faith or your response, your belief in the truth that was offered to you by God, as a result of that and having obtained the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ positionally, now he's talking about practice now. Practically speaking, what effect should this have on you? Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So as we dive into verse 15 here, therefore, you weren't saved for no reason. Don't think that you were. There is a place for Christian living, but Christian living is motivated by a love for God and it's empowered by the Spirit of God working in our lives to make Him bigger in our lives. It's not motivated by a desire to somehow prove that God should save us or, or to make it so that we could be saved. You're already saved. You're already adopted. You're already sealed by the Holy Spirit and nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's what God said. This isn't conditional. Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are fixed. You're in God's family and he'll never let you go. That issue is settled. As you think about even that, just because I know there's some here that maybe have never seen this. You want to get into the family of God. There's only one way into the family of God. It's through this really artistic door that I just drew here. You have a decision to make. You have your whole life to make that decision, but you don't know how long your life might be. You had a decision to make. Am I going to put my faith I'm going to to put my confidence for my eternal destiny. Am I going to put that in Jesus Christ and what he's already done to pay my debt? Or am I going to put it in myself, my religion, my church, my rituals, my money, my what have you? I'll tell you what. I I honestly, and, and I know a lot of people fall into this boat, but I honestly cannot even imagine putting my eternal destiny, the faith for my eternal destiny in myself that I'm going to somehow get it right and I'm going to check off enough boxes that God's somehow going to let me into heaven, that I'm going to rest, I'm going to go to sleep at night not knowing if I'm going to wake up in the morning. Each night I'm going to go to sleep putting my rest, I'm resting in my own effort to save myself. Some of you are better men than I am. Some of you can get things right, like just basic things right like, say, a 45-degree miter cut. Some of you can do that, so maybe you have a little bit more confidence in your ability to check boxes off. But, I mean, I can't even cut a piece of wood straight at 45 degrees. I can't remember why I went into the grocery store. The guy you have up here speaking at times walks up and down the stairs several times, no idea what he's going to get. (laughs) And I'm going to trust in that guy to handle eternal matters? I'd much rather put my faith in that guy and what he's done for me to deal with my eternal future. In any event, faith in Jesus Christ, that gets you into this family of God, this big, big circle that we have here. That's how you get into the family of God. Now, so much confusion is caused by thinking that 
Some of the passages that talk about not walking with the Lord, not trusting the Lord, not depending on the Lord, not living the kind of life that you should live, that they're talking about the family of God. They're not talking about the family of God. They're, they're passages, just ask yourself, who are those letters written to? They're written to group, groups of believers that are already God's children. They're already in the family of God. They're not passages about how you get to be in God's family. They're passages about what we call fellowship. Fellowship with God. That's just relating to God. How close to God are you in any particular moment? Now, are you always going to be on, let's just say, Are you always going to be close to God in an interactive kind of a way? I'm not talking about positionally close to God. You're in his family. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're placed into the family of God. You now bear his name. You are now a Christ one. Even when you're not living like it, even when you're not acting like it, you are a Christ one. That's not the issue. The issue is, will you trust the Lord and walk with the Lord and relate to the Lord, draw near to the Lord, have a closeness of relationship with Him in time as you go about your days? And here we have an arrow in and an arrow out of that circle because sometimes you are enjoying that. Hopefully you are right now. Maybe you weren't when you walked through the door this morning, but maybe now you are. Say, man, yeah, I do have a good God. It's good to be reminded of that. I'm really enjoying that I am his child. I I am trusting him. Those songs really hit me. Something that was praised, something that's been said, it really hit me hard. Man, am I blessed to be a child of God. You know what? On my good days, I'm a child of God. And on my bad days, I'm a child of God. I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. Got this heartbeat in my chest. No, it doesn't matter about the rest. If I've got you, then I'm so blessed. Just wait. It's coming, guys. It's, it's a song. It's coming. <laughs> Some days you are experiencing the joy of the Lord, a practical joy of the Lord. You have a lot of joy positionally, but practically you're enjoying that. You're close to God in those moments. But is that always true? No, sometimes your mind wanders. Sometimes your faith dips. Does that mean you're not in God's family? No. It means you're not presently trusting God. You're not experiencing intimacy. We could put that word up there too. You're not experiencing intimacy with God. But are you still in God's family? Yes. You're always in God's family because you didn't get into God's family through anything that you did. You got into God's family by putting your trust in what he did. So the Bible says, though we are faithless at times, yet he remains faithful still. He cannot deny himself. When I'm in God's family, I'm always in God's family because I'm not the one keeping me in God's family. I was born into God's family by a decision that I made, and then the result of that was permanent. God's the one who's holding on to me. God's the one who's preserving me. God's the one who's clinging to me. Now, he wants me to experience all that intimacy and walk with him and trust him and be drawing nearer to him and all of those things are true. He then wants to work in my life when I'm in this place where I'm close to God. God wants to then work in my life to produce, we'll, we'll just call it a godly manner 
of living. That's the plan, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm always in God's family regardless. So I, I bring that up because I know that some people, as they, as they hear you talk about these things, they say, where does this living for the Lord work in? Where does doing the right things work in? It doesn't work in to help, help enhance your chances of going to heaven. The only way you go to heaven is through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that's it. You either believed in that or you didn't. You put all your eggs in that basket or you didn't. But he's talking about now your life, this Christian life that you're living and how God wants that to, to go. So we've been looking at therefore. He's saying in light of these truths, connecting back to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord, in light of these truths, these should be the practical implications. These should be. Your positional reality should produce these practical implications. God doesn't again force any of this against your will, but what are they? There's two, there's two and he's writing to brethren, so it just clarifies that this is an, an admonition that's directed to fellow believers, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with getting saved or being in God's family. They already are. He's saying in light of the fact that you are in God's family, in light of the fact that you've permanently acquired the sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ, in light of those truths, now here's two specific exhortations that are being made. Now they're both present active imperatives, meaning this should be or this should qualify your present state of being. This should be presently true in your life. It's active in the sense that God isn't going to force this on you. The subject, the subject isn't being acted upon. The subject is producing the action. Therefore, and he's talking to them, brethren, you stand fast and hold the tradition. So who's responsible for that choice? You are. And as you think about the imperative aspect of that, God's, anytime you see an imperative in the Greek language, it's just saying this is something that is absolutely critical to your spiritual well-being. This is something that I'm telling you as a father would tell a son because I love you so desperately and I want you to thrive. So the two things that he's saying should be true. They should characterize your life right now. You have to choose this. And these are things that are critical are these two things. The first one is stand fast or stand firm. And the second one is hold the traditions. So stand fast or stand firm and then hold the traditions. So we start with stand fast, stand firm. Now the word refers to continuing with something, holding one's ground, or maintaining a currently held position. So can you imagine as these believers are facing all kinds of persecution, can you imagine how Paul would maybe want to say to them, stand your ground. Keep on going with what you have going right now. Don't change direction. Is he saying they couldn't change direction? No, he knows they could. They could fall, pray to the opposition. They could see that it's easier to just go with the flow. And he's saying, don't do that. Keep, continue on in the direction you're going. Hold your ground and stay with this, stay steadfast in what you have in Christ. Keep trusting him. You know, one of these things that I, I came across a while back, it, it was talking about current. And, you know, the, there's a current. The world has a current where it's pulling in a certain direction. And in what direction is that? Well, it's the direction that is exactly opposite of toward God. It's a direction of pulling away from God. The, the nature of the world system is that it's a current pulling you away from God. And it's doing it in many different ways. 
some of them very innocent, some of them not even sinful, just the collective effort or the collective uh, culmination of those things when they're put together is that they're drawing you away from your first love, they're drawing you away from God, and they're drawing away from you away from Jesus Christ. So that's why it makes sense to at times take inventory of the things that you're filling your mind with, the things that you're filling your time with, because collectively the effort is always to have those things pull you away from your relationship with Him. Seek first the kingdom of God, our focus on, on our walk with Him. And that's what we're told and talked about. Paul talks about often this walking in a manner that's consistent or worthy of the calling that we have. So in, in the sense of being, we, we've been given this mission, we've been assigned to this task of being emissaries or ambassadors or light bearers for Jesus Christ. Now walk or live life in a way that's consistent with that. Don't hide your light under a bushel basket, shine that, when you talk about that quality of emitting the beautiful and bright light of Jesus Christ, so let it shine among men so that they could be what? They could be saved. If your gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those who are perishing. They can't, how can they believe in one of whom they have never heard? How can they hear of that if there's nobody to tell them? So I love to tell the story Twill be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Is that a story you love to tell? But the world is pulling us, the current is pulling us away from God. And so the thing I I heard, it said, you know that any dead fish can float with the current. Any dead fish can float with the current. It takes a living fish to swim against the current. And who makes us alive? God makes us alive. It's the power of Him. So when we're focused and depending on Him, we're trusting Him, we're appropriating His, His strength and His grace and His provision for us in our daily lives, then we swim against the current, not because we tried so hard to swim against the current, but because we have a supernatural power source that allows us to swim against the current. Who wants to swim against the current? That's another thing to ask yourself. Hey, if I'm swimming against the current, what does that mean? I'm standing out, right? Because everyone else is going with the current. You ever seen that guy who just insists on walking the opposite direction on the wrong side of the street and everyone else is going this way and they're trying to go back the other way? Does that guy stand out? That, guy, that guy's liable to irritate a whole bunch of people. You know what? If you're a light for Jesus Christ, you're liable to irritate a whole bunch of people. They don't want it. it they, men love darkness rather than light. This is the condemnation that light came into the world, but men don't want it. They're not going to be happy that they're trying to keep their blinders on and you're shining a bright light in their face. There's opposition that comes with swimming against the current. I'll tell you what, your flesh doesn't want to face that opposition your flesh doesn't want to stand firm. Your, fat, your flesh wants to turn tail and just go with the current. So it's only when you're walking by means of the Spirit of God, His leading, His influence, His direction in your life, that you're ever going to stand firm. This isn't talking about doing this in our own strength, and we'll see that a bit later. But this talking about holding one's ground, this is a current exhortation found in Paul's letters. Ask yourself, why do you think this is a common exhortation? It's a common exhortation because we naturally don't do this. We naturally just fit right into the flow that's going by us because that's easier. 
and we always default to easier. So what are some of these passages? We're going through them relatively quickly here. Here's a bunch of them though. And this isn't all of them. It wasn't intended to be exhaustive. But 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be what? Be steadfast. Here we have the same idea. Stand firm. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Same word. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain. He's exhorting them. He's pleading with them to have this mentality. Be steadfast stand fast stand firm first corinthians 16 13 watch what does it say next stand fast in the faith why because we don't necessarily we don't naturally do that be brave be strong be strong what in your own strength no ephesians 6 he says be strong in the lord and in the power of his might but be strong let all that you do be done with love as i have loved you so love one another it's not that complicated. Love God, respond to, who he, to His love that was shown to you, and then love people. But do it as His Spirit enables and empowers you to do it. Galatians 5.1, what do we have again? Stand fast, this time therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Do not go back to a system of laws and rules and regulations that you are not under anymore. Ephesians chapter 4, 14 through 15. This is Paul's desire here. He says there's an alternative. Instead of the alternative, I want you to stand fast. I don't want you to go, back, go backwards or to turn around or go with the flow. I want you to hold your ground, maintain the currently held position. He says that we should no longer be children, meaning this was the case in the past or could be the case again. Now what was characteristic of children? He's talking about immature believers here. They were tossed to and fro and they were carried about with every wind of doctrine. If you don't grow in your understanding, you don't come out and hear the teaching of the Word of God, you don't fellowship with other believers, you don't discuss these things, you're never going to grow. If you don't grow, you're not going to have any discernment. So you're going to hear all kinds of things from all kinds of different people, none of them sourced in God's Word, and you're going to just keep going with it. Oh, that sounds good. I'll adopt that. I'll start, I'll start repeating that. I'll start recommending that book. Instead of spending your time in this book, you're going to spend time in all these other books that people say are so wonderful. Some of them maybe are. But I'll tell you what, for most of you, you don't have time for them. That's my personal opinion. If you don't have time for this, you don't have time for them. It starts with this book. This is God's word. This is God's truth. When you know this cover to cover, then you got time for some of the rest of it. And I don't say that dogmatically. I understand devotions are nice and some of those books are nice, but the truth is, this is the book we need to spend our time in. And so you think about being carried to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, meaning it's not true, the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. He says instead of that, though, You're to grow in your faith so that you could speak the truth in love. You could grow up in all things unto him who is the head, who is the head of Jesus Christ. Stand fast. That's what he's after here, though. Don't be blown around. The opposite of standing fast is you're tossed to and fro and you're carried about with every wind of doctrine. Philippians 1.27, another passage. 
Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now what does he say here? That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. But there's our phrase again. Stand fast, stand firm, be steadfast. Another passage in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. We're not standing fast in our own strength and our own ideas and our own intellect. We're standing fast in the Lord. And then, uh, there should have been one more. Yeah, there's one more in 1 Thessalonians 3.8 that says, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. If you stand fast in the Lord. So then the second thing in terms of exhortations here, a second present active imperative, this is critical to your spiritual well-being. There's a purpose. Remember this started with therefore. In light of this gospel that you heard, the salvation that you have, in light of now being identified positionally, but now I'm, my, my desire for you is that practically there, this would be true in your life too, being identified with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, having obtained the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's present tense in the sense of right now and it's always obviously positional in the sense that this already occurred and it's also somewhat future looking in the sense that one day we will be glorified. But in light of this, the second exhortation here is hold the traditions which you were taught. Now they were taught to you by word or by epistle that just qualifies how these traditions were taught but hold to them. Now this is critical Now, when you look at this word hold, it means to seize, arrest, grasp tightly or forcefully. So this word has a little bit more meaning than our English word for hold. Grasp tightly or forcefully. To arrest somebody is to seize them. The the officer's not letting that go. It's to grasp them forcefully and tightly. Now, what are we supposed to do? Are to grasp and hold tightly. Traditions. Traditions refers to anything handed down from respected authorities, but in our context, it would include teaching about the Old Testament Scripture. It would include things that were taught by Jesus Christ. It would include new revelation that is coming in the form of the New Testament Scripture that is being developed right here in the early church. In the context, the immediate context, the focus is likely on the return of Jesus Christ or Christ's return because that's the thing that he's been talking about even as he got into this section here in verse 13 is that the Lord is coming again. And there are going to be those that are going to face his judgment because they've rejected Jesus Christ, unlike you, who he's contrasting here in verses 13 through 17. You're not going to face God's judgment because you're saved. Now, in light of that, in light of that truth, then stand fast or stand firm. Shouldn't that allow you or, or persuade you to stand firm, knowing that the Lord is coming back again and holding on to the traditions that you were taught? And so the idea is keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you both in person and in letter. Keep a strong grip on that. Hold fast to that. Stand firm in that. And as you think about that, you cannot grow apart from learning God's truth. And you cannot learn apart from teaching. Now, there's many different ways that you can be taught God's truth. But you cannot grow apart from learning and you cannot learn apart from teaching. That is a fact. And so, so many of us are wondering, oh, why is it that I'm not growing in my faith? Hmm. Because you're not learning anything. And you're not learning anything because you're not being taught anything. Now, it's not rocket science. Kids don't advance from one phase of mathematics instruction to the next without teaching. 
without learning things. It builds on itself. So some of you are new here. Some of the stuff I talk about sounds like absolute gibberish to you. That's okay. Just keep coming. Because it's line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. You learn a little bit here. You ask questions. You learn a little bit more. The foundation starts getting established. You start building upon that foundation. And pretty soon there's a lot of kind of complicated biblical matters that don't seem that complicated anymore. Well, why? Because it was a process of growth over time. And again, there's lots of ways to get that. That'll have to be a different message. There's enough here that we'll never get home if I go through all that. But there's many different ways that you can be taught God's truth. Now we move on to verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So here's a different thought altogether. He finished a prayer. He was having a prayer of thanksgiving. He was saying that I have to give thanks always. Now he moves into another prayer and he just lumps it right together. As he's talking to God, you can switch subjects whenever you want, friends. You don't, there's no formula to it. You might start up praising God. You might, you might move on to thanking God. You might move on to asking God or petitioning God for things in your own life. You then may move on to intercessions and you might be asking God about things in other people's life. And then you might go back to some thanksgiving, go back to a little bit of intercession, go back to a little bit of praise, okay? It's, it's not formulaic. Talk, talk to God. Pray, pray to God and talk to God throughout your day. And whatever you're going through, is you're going to be talking to him about. So Paul pivots here to this prayer of intercession where he asks for some things on behalf of these believers. So he says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father. So who does he address the prayer to? You notice here's another example of a biblical example of addressing a prayer both to Jesus Christ and to the Father at the same time. Just pointing it out, very often because Jesus, when he prayed, he said, Dear Heavenly Father, or our Father who art in heaven, he said, I'm going to teach you how to pray this way. And so he said, Our Father who art in heaven. Well, why? Because he's not praying to himself in that moment. He's, he's giving an example of how he could pray and others could pray to the Father. But it doesn't mean you can't talk to Jesus Christ. The Godhead is not divided. It's one God that has three, three unique or individual components or parts, but it's one God. And so if, if you want to address a prayer of petition or prayer of intercession to our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, then apparently that's appropriate because here's another example of that. Now, God's disposition towards believers before he gets to the request, he describes God's, how God views or how God is disposed towards believers and it's described in two wonderful ways. Now look at this. He says in verse 16, this is to our Lord Jesus Christ and our God and Father. Our God and Father, now catch this, who has loved us. That's the first one. He's loved us. He says that right in his prayer. Now may God our Father who has loved us, and then he's going to say, and given us. So has loved us. You're loved by God. That's unbelievable and inconceivable, but it's true. God loves you. I don't know why you're not that lovable. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us. How he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. I don't even, I don't even know why. 
when you're being honest with yourself, you're going to say, this is inconceivable. I don't know why. I know other people love me because they don't really know me. Sad but partially true. Yet God knows you fully and he loves you fully anyone, anyway and he's the only one who does. Romans 5.8 says, apparently not. <laughs> it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sin- still sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love when we're unlovely. Ephesians 2, 2 through 6 says, but God who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us. He has a great love for you. Ephesians 2, 2 through 6. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Meaning he didn't save, he's not in the business of saving good people and not saving bad people. You're all, everyone is described as being dead in trespasses and sins. Everyone is described as needing to be made alive and it's done by God's grace while we were dead in trespasses and sins, while we were enemies of God, he still loved us anyway and he sent his son to pay our penalty. He then identified us with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ. He made us to sit in the heavenly places with Christ. He gave us this great position in Christ. None of it was deserved. So you think even about that second phrase, who has loved us, but then who has given us. Now, two specific things are said to have been given by God and both of them are in the past tense, meaning these are fixed realities. He gave us, he's given us everlasting consolation and good hope. Now, everlasting consolation refers to endless encouragement and comfort. He's given us endless encouragement and comfort. What would be encouraging, what would be encouraging about focusing on yourself? Focusing on yourself would be discouraging. What would be encouraging about focusing on other people? Focusing on other people would be discouraging. What would be encouraging about focusing, focusing on the world around you? Focusing on the world around you would be discouraging. He gave you an endless source of encouragement by focusing on Him. He gave it to us in the sense that He's given us that comfort and consolation, again in the context related to the Lord's return. Why are we having comfort and consolation and encouragement? Because we see that God has made a way for us. God has made a way for us to be saved. He's been a, made a way for us to be saved from the influence of sin or the power of sin. He's made a way for us to live a life that would make him, bring him honor and glory. He's made a way for us to look forward to his return eagerly as we are, have an expectation even of hearing, well done thou good and faithful servant. We could do that. We could have that encouragement as we think about his provision for us of the ability to live in light of the positional truths that are, are fixed realities in our lives. He's talked about the good hope and it refers to this confident expectation regarding the fulfillment of promises previously made by God. So we have a conf- consolation that God is, the Lord is coming back. That's probably what he's talking about in, in light of the context about the Lord's return. The Lord's return should b- provide a believer with endless sources of encouragement and comfort and hope as God is a promise-keeping God. 
And the story ends with us being forever with him in a perfect place, free forever of sin and pain, sorrow, sadness, sickness, all of the things that are making this life a real drag at times. He's saying that you'll never have to deal with any of that again one day. I'm coming back. If I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and I'm going to redeem you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. He says, therefore what? Comfort one another with these words. There's comfort in knowing that the Lord is coming back. There's comfort in knowing that you have a future and that your future is very bright. Your hope is in the Lord and this confident expectation in Him fulfilling the promises that He has made to you. Now see how this ends? It ends by saying, by grace. Who has loved us, who has given us this everlasting comfort and this good hope by grace. It reminds us that God's provision is unmerited. You can't earn this. You're not working for this. God is giving this to you. God, it focuses on God's having undertaken for man rather than anything man is doing to undertake for himself. And the Bible, correctly understood, always maintains that emphasis. So now what are the specific intercessory prayers? We finally get to them here. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, may they do what? Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. He created us to be a reflection of him. He has a purpose for our life. He wants us to live godly lives, righteous lives, lives characterized by good works. Comfort your heart, though, it starts with. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father comfort your heart. The idea is here is to provide internal encouragement. See, the scripture presents the heart as the seat of our emotion, our motivation, will, thought, and desire. And he says, I want to give encouragement to your heart. May God do that. That's his prayer to God is that God would encourage their hearts. Why? Because they were facing a lot of hard things. May God encourage your heart today. Is that something that you would be praying for yourself and others? May God encourage your heart. What was the second prayer? That may God establish you in every good word and work. That was his second prayer for them is that God wouldn't just leave them where he found them, but that God would establish them. It it involves propping up, strengthening, or supporting. Establishing is propping up, strengthening, or supporting. There's a purpose behind this. God wants your life to be lived in a manner that promotes Him, but He's saying the prayer that Paul has for these believers is, may God strengthen and support and prop you up so that you would be effective at this mission that God has for you. And what is the mission? That He would prop you up, that He would strengthen and support you in every good word and work. God wants your life to be lived in a manner that promotes Him. Every aspect of your life, every word, every work. And it involves a positive volitional response on your part. God isn't forcing this to be true. Paul is saying to God, would you, make, would you promote this in their lives? But God isn't going to establish them and prop them up or strengthen them in every good word and work apart from them being willing, apart from them being yielded vessels that He can work with. And it manifests itself, this desire to live life in a way that promotes Him in your words and deeds, these good works. Being produced in your life as empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, we saw that even back with, by grace, we see that even in Paul's prayer to God that God would do this. You see, Paul is petitioning God to do both of these things, to comfort their hearts and to establish them in every good word and work. He's not telling them in this letter, I want you to comfort yourself. He's not saying, I want you to establish yourselves in every good word and work. He's praying that God would do this in their lives. 
He realizes that that power source is supernatural. This isn't self-soothing. He's not saying, may you soothe yourself or comfort yourself, give yourself encouragement. He's saying, God, would you give these believers that encouragement? And this is very similar language to what we see In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, where he says, I sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to do what? What are the two things he sent him to do? To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Very similar language. And the the takeaway from that is that this is a supernatural thing, but, and God is the one being asked to do that, but God does this through human instruments. He uses human instruments at least at times to accomplish this so timothy wasn't doing this through his own strength timothy though was sent to do these same two things that paul is praying that god would do in these believers life timothy was sent to do that not through his own power but through the power of god working in his life to establish them or to comfort their hearts encourage their hearts and establish them in every good word and work god has again a purpose for your life it's not just to waste your life away It's not just to wait for the end and try to just tread water in the meantime. It's to grow in grace, grow in understanding, to be an ambassador for Christ, to be a witness to Christ, to be a vessel in his hands that he can use to direct, to undertake with whatever service and every every work he has planned for you. But do you want that? Are you interested in that? So you're thinking about this practical application of these positional truths that we have in Christ. Stand firm and hold tightly. Those are the main ones that we looked at even today, but then will God comfort you, encourage you, and establish you? Same kind of idea, standing firm, established, holding tightly to the truths that you know. And you're already positionally identified with Jesus Christ and His glory, but the, the issue is, you, will you practically appropriate the power of God working in your life by grace to stand firm and hold tightly to what you do know? And the question is, is that your prayerful desire? Do you desire to live in light of your glorified position? You have a glorified position. You're in Christ. You're a Christ one. That's how God sees you positionally, but do you have a desire to be a reflection of that in your everyday life? Are you praying for that? And as you think about, is it possible? Yes, it's possible that these things would be true. If today you say, this isn't true of me, I'm not standing firm, I'm not holding tightly to these truths. Well, it could be, but it involves this choice in your part. Are you going to walk with the Lord? Are you going to get your eyes off of yourself, your circumstances, the world, others? Get your eyes and your gaze fixed on Jesus Christ? Are you going to walk with the Lord? Are you going to talk with the Lord? Are you going to get right with the Lord even if, you've, if you're in that family of God, but right now you're not experiencing that intimacy with God? Are you going to make an adjustment there and turn your, turn your focus back to Him so that He can then produce this outcome in your life? The question is always when it comes to the Christian living, it's always will you? You can. The question is will you? And when it comes to prayers, because we're talking about prayers is, Is this something that you're going to incorporate prayer into that equation and be praying for these things for yourself, praying for these things for others that you would stand firm and hold tightly? Are you praying for me that I would stand firm and hold tightly? Am I praying for you that you would stand firm and hold tightly all 
by God's grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to even open it together and to be taught from it. Pray that we would see that apart from learning and apart from being taught, we cannot grow in our faith. Pray that we'd put a high value on these matters and that we'd invest time into it just like we invest time into so many things that have no eternal value. Pray that we would see that Uh, fixing our eyes and our gaze on you and desiring to have a close personal relationship with you is the thing that will cause us to have an abundant life, a life that is thriving spiritually, that we would see that it, it it doesn't start with these other things. It starts with our relationship with you. And then as we enjoy you, it leads to these other things as you live and work through us and you make changes in our lives. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your provision for our every need. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's in number 487. I'll have you stand up, please. <clears throat> Be not dismayed, whatever betide, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. All you may need, He will provide. God will take care of you. His word can never be denied. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. No matter what may be the test, God will take care of you. Lean weary one upon his breast, God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you.